0: over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Oh, they're amazing. I mean, the Northern Hairy nosed Wombat is listed as one of the most endangered mammals in the world. What can they teach us?
1: Food stays in their track for a long time. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But what happens is on the way out, this is where it gets amazing. Wombats are known to... poop.
0: Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So we're going back down under again. <laughs> we love Australia. <laughs> we love their animals. We love their people, our friends, you know, Chantel and all the uh, Chris and Tash and Pip loves Australia. I cannot wait to get over there once the borders open. But an amazing creature today, the wombat.
1: Yes, Chris, the wombat. I don't know how it took us this long to cover the wombat because I've had more fun this week researching wombats and I have fallen in love. I think I just sent you a screenshot of a video I was watching of just how darling they are. It's like I knew about wombats because recently a couple of my friends sent me this article about wombats and their poop. So we're going to talk all about their unique poop.
0: Yes, I knew it. I knew, <laughs> and they, it. I knew and, it. And all
1: my friends know that I love nutrition and I love poop. Yeah. I love what goes in and I love what goes out and yeah. everything in between. So I knew about a wombat, but after this week, I realized I did not know about wombats. Nope,
0: nope. Their
1: behavior is so cool. I didn't realize there's three different species. So today we're going to talk about the common wombat, which is also known as the bear nose because – it's that darling, yes, <laughs> or the forest wombat. They're all kind of interchangeable, and then the southern hairy nosed wombat and the northern hairy nosed wombat, which is critically endangered.
0: Yeah, so we'll left. tell that
1: story yeah. today, yes, and yeah. and learn about, uh, and we'll talk all about the conservation efforts with the northern hairy nosed. Uh, wombat. And it's it's a good positive story, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Uh, they're not out of the woods yet, but uh, it, is, it is somewhat of a feel-good story. And just in general, all the behaviors, just the physiology. We're just talking about this cute, short-legged, fur-bellied, Aussie <laughs> awesome marsupial. I mean, it's yeah. just – it's like – uh, I think, that, of course, the kangaroos and the koalas get a lot of the uh, get a lot of the media. Rightfully mm-hmm. so, they're very mm-hmm. unique, very fun creatures. I've been blessed enough to work with kangaroos, but now I'm wishing I would have worked with wombats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: No, they're amazing. I mean, the northern hairy nosed wombat is listed as one of the most endangered mammals in the world. So you know, I know we did Sumatran rhinos a few weeks back. Who also is one of the most endangered mammals in the world, but the, these wombats are right behind them. And I don't forget, I, I always want to remember to shout out to Lee near Sydney. Lee, when I get over there, I'm definitely gonna go out in the bush with you. I know you you told me a few years ago. Whenever you get to Australia, mate, I'm gonna take you around. So I'm I'm gonna take you up on that here pretty soon, hopefully in 2022. Just love Australia, our listeners. Thank you for all the support across the ditch from me and on the other side of the planet for Angie, but you know, we, we really appreciate you guys uh, following us and, and reaching out and giving us recommendations on some of the coolest animals on earth that you have there. And yes, Chris, with all that
1: being said, uh, my ass this week for our listeners, our awesome fans, if you could please share this podcast with one or two family members or friends, uh, Like us on social media, subscribe to our All Creatures Facebook group. We have a lot of fun conversations there. And just help Chris and I grow because we really need your help in getting the message out there. Growing this podcast is a great way for people to learn and fall in love with creatures like the wombat. I guarantee regardless if you live in Australia or the United States or Canada or Mexico or anywhere where you might be listening – you are going to fall in love with a wombat and somebody else should. And people need to know that the Northern hairy nosed wombat is critically endangered. Uh, and we need to help them because they're so cool.
0: Oh, They're, they're so adorable. And I just want to give a, a, a quick shout out to Brianne who left us a wonderful review on Facebook and she's up in the Pennsylvania region and, I just thank you. It made my day again those reviews on iTunes and anywhere else you can it it, it just it just drives us. So thank you so much, Brian, for the kind words and at the end of this podcast, I'm gonna give some some tips on if you run across a marsupial unfortunately that have been killed on the road and how you may be able to help them. So stay tuned for that. so describing this thing, Angie, it, it's like a little furry tank it's Chunky, just, just, just darling
1: oh, i it's like a short, stocky bear, uh, and, but less dangerous looking, I suppose, because they they are they're, they're these compact, robust animals with short, strong limbs, a short neck, very, very compressed, but basically a round body that really, they're really chunky, which I adore. I'm always a fan of an overly conditioned animal. And for me, Chris, the wombat's ears and nose really seal the deal for the cuteness. Uh, So depending on which species it is that you're talking about, the common wombat is going to have more rounded ears, where the two species of the hairy-nosed wombats have a little bit larger ears. But all the species have just beautiful fur that can either be sandy brown or gray, blackish in color with little flecks of white almost just really beautiful fur. And they all have these long thick claws because they're very, very strong diggers. And I have a whole section about that and behavior because they do some really, really unique behaviors with their digging abilities and their burrowing abilities. And it's just, they're, they're quite something they have. They definitely have some uh, superpowers that I learned about this, uh, this past week that no other animal or mammal on earth have. So and yes, they're just darling and their noses are almost like a bear nose, especially the common or the bear nose wombat uh, is just really cute. And then the hairy nosed is darling as well, in my opinion, and just very, very prominent nose. And then they have uh, whiskers or vibrasa that, that come off the side uh, as a burring animal. And I'm not doing them justice. So we'll put some pictures up on our show notes and I could watch them walk, waddle, around all day with their little stocky short
0: legs. (laughs) They just look at them. You're just like, you want to cuddle with them, which I don't suggest doing, but.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned that because the picture I sent you was with an an animal education expert and they did have the wombat on their lap. And while it was on their lap, it actually laid on its back Uh where, so its belly was showing, like kind of a submissive way that a dog would. And it's just like laying there happily and- I know I'm not supposed to want to interact with wildlife, <laughs> but I was like, I want that wombat on my lap right now, like yesterday. I, know, I have I not know. lived because I have not had a wombat on my lap, but I, I never will because I shouldn't because I don't yeah, work right. with them, right? So,
0: right, right. But yes,
1: it I was can't wait. precious. I can't mm-hmm. wait to get over mm-hmm. there and, and, and mm-hmm. see them.
0: So these things size-wise about 30 inches or 76 meters long. They're big. Yeah, yeah, they're big. And they can weigh the common wombat can weigh up to 88 pounds or 40 kilograms. And the hairy nose, just a little bit less at 71 pounds or 32 kilograms. So, not uh, small. <laughs> they're not small at all.
1: No, in fact, <laughs> yeah. Chris, they're the world's largest burrowing animal. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's Australia always has all the records. So, here's I know. another one. I know. And I know. they're actually the second largest marsupial. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. behind the yeah. kangaroo of course yeah they're big so, they are mm-hmm, big, big yes big, big boys and that's why I,
1: lo- I love big chunky it just ah so i was. i did not know that they are that big like yeah. if you would have asked me prior to doing this research i would have thought no, that they no. were like cat sized i suppose but yeah. they're like they're like my dog rainbow she's you know yeah. 62 pounds
0: they're growing they're, so yeah they're they're a significantly sized animal and mammal you know mammal and they uh, they're just, and I, I forgot to start off. I mean, when I think of wombat, I'm thinking, oh, this thing's a predator. You know, it's going to go out there and eat wallabies or something, but it's not. It's herbivore. <laughs> so this thing,
1: oh, this yes. Is, and yes. I don't know what's been missing in my life the past week, Chris, but I will forewarn everybody. And I'm sure we won't have time to go into my like eight slides based on their herbivore <laughs> nutrition yes, and yes. their, I have about five slides on just their. G I or their uh gastrointestinal mm-hmm. physiology. It's
0: really so
1: good. I I don't know why yeah. that's the like the rabbit hole I went down, even though I know a lot about it, but I was just still like, oh, I need to send this paper to so and so. And you sent me that paper as well. So uh, but yes, they are they are just a, a cute little herbivore that's uh eats grass and other fun things we'll talk about. Uh, and so yeah, I yeah, they're cool.
0: Okay, Angie, now talking about where these range. So let's start with the common wombat. This is southern and eastern Australia and then Tasmania. Mm-hmm. So looking at their former range, I mean, they the, the commons went up to, you know, all the way up the east coast, halfway up the east coast in Australia. So up to Queensland, New South Wales, that whole area, Sydney. Now their current range still believe near the Melbourne area. That's why I gotta get down to Chantel and, and Dave and 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 go out in the bush there because there's so many animals. I remember a couple of years ago when I flew into Melbourne, I just wanted to run outside the airport and spend a couple of days, but I had to get back to California. I, I just I, I gotta go there. I've got to go there <laughs> and see these animals. So that's kind of where they're at. Now the southern hairy nosed obviously is South Australia. But also parts of Western Australia and then New South Wales, so just bleeding into the the eastern portion of Australia, and that's where they're at. Now the Northern hairy nosed wombat, its former range was was pretty big, you know, in eastern Australia, where it was in Queensland down to New South Wales. Today, it, it it was the population was so reduced they were restricted to about. 740 acres of the Epping National Forest in East Central Queensland. Now, you mentioned earlier before we got started that they have reintroduced another population elsewhere in Australia.
1: Yes. In 2009, a second colony of Northern hairy-nosed wombats were established at the Richard Underwood National Refuge uh, in Southern Queensland. So still still a small population, though, there. And the goal of this project, of course, is to not have all the northern hairy-nosed wombats in one area in case there is a fire or a disease or something like that. But, Chris, just to add to the ranges you were talking about, it's very striking when you look at a map, and maybe we can put on our show notes, about what their former range was and what their current range is, not only for the northern hairy, but for all the species is they are definitely much more reduced in their current areas where they live and more fragmented as well.
0: I mean, these animals, Australia, and I'm going to get into some of the invasive species here in a second. These animals are so important to the biome. I mean, it's, it's a burrow living species. They, they are mm-hmm. prey species. We'll, we'll get into that. There, there's some really interesting behaviors that they have in physiology. But, I mean, they're a herbivore. They're, these these wombats are important to Australia's ecosystem, right?
1: Oh, yeah. First and foremost, Chris, wombats are what we call ecosystem engineers. So as a burrow builder, which we'll talk a lot about when we get to behavior, they build burrows underground. And there was a study in 2015 that put camera traps on where – and there was a study in 2015 um, on an island in southern Australia that was looking at southern hairy-nosed wombat behavior, and they put traps near their burrows. Well, lo and behold, they found over 11 other species using these burrows besides the southern hairy-nosed wombat. Everything from different reptiles like sand skinks to fairy penguins, which I'm like, okay, I think I'm in love. Uh, <laughs> yes. Tell me more about the fairy penguins. But, but yeah, just all different creatures using them. And it's thought that with the fire cycle that happens in Australia, of course, much more prevalent now due to climate change, If with, with the reduction in wombats reducing the burrows underground, is potentially – hindering other creatures that could seek refuge during a wildfire into these burrows. But if the burrows aren't there, it's thought to maybe be killing off more animals that you know, can't outrun the fire. Like, historically, they could have gone underground in wombat burrows, but now they're stuck. And so just a true, true ecosystem engineer. And that's just talking about their burrowing habits. When we when we think about what they eat as herbivores, wombats have a huge effect on influencing how plants and vegetation grows in these environments. And they are a little bit, they eat a lot of different foods so they could potentially can be seed dispersers as well, but they're also selective in the different grasses that they eat and how they eat. And we'll talk a little bit about, and we'll talk about that as we get into nutrition. And so they're really important for, basically mowing down the landscape and helping things grow and regrow. Uh, so just a really, really important ecosystem role that rombats play.
0: They do. I mean, just when you were talking about that, I remember a few episodes back, this was probably 50 episodes ago, we were talking about the recovery of Australia's species and they were finding some of these critically endangered animals emerging from burrows sure you know on i think it was kangaroo island where that one just got almost completely wiped out and uh, a few other places where you know animals emerge from those burrows so that, you can't discount that
1: you just can't no not at all and that's what it just really got me thinking about how important they are and when when you look at this map of their historic range or their former range if you will to their current range it's it's a big difference in landmass. And so those large areas that used to have lots of different burrows in them for not only the wombats to use of course but for other species to use or protect themselves from it's it's probably pretty hindering. Uh and and then thinking of the northern hairy-nosed wombat and their conservation challenges. I as we mentioned they had this really large range, uh, in East Eastern and Southern Australia. And now it's in teeny tiny two spots that are fenced in for their own protection, which is good, uh, to protect them from pre- predators. And, uh, but gosh, I mean, and there was only 35 Northern hairy nosed wombats in the early 1980s. That's crazy, right? I mean, and luckily enough people had the foresight to start managing them And of course, researchers have dedicated their careers to helping save them. And I want to give a big shout out to Dr. Alan Horsup. He's spent 30 years uh, working with these critically endangered wombats. And he has really been an integral part of helping their population grow from 35 in the early 1980s to around 300 today. And then, of course, these two populations uh, at Epping Forest National Park and then the Richard Underwood Nation, uh, Nature Refuge, and he's about to retire. But he said his goal is he's, he's not going to retire until he can get a, another a third population going somewhere else. So mm-hmm. what a you know what an icon and what a hero. Yeah. And he's training students underneath him. And mm-hmm. some of his work in the past ten or fifteen years has just been really critical to learning more about their behavior. His team has set up uh, cameras to study the Northern hairy nose wombat behavior, which is really important so they can understand how they move and their colony use and just other really key behaviors. And then he's also uh, collecting wombat hair from their burrows where like that they rub on something uh, to do genetic testing because Chris and I have always talked about these bottleneck populations where there's only a handful of them, 10, 20, 30, and then what's going to happen to them genetically. And so probably trying to figure out how they're doing with their genetic diversity. And then potentially that may help them decide which population to potentially move into another area. So they're not there yet for a third colony. And 95% of all Northern hairy nosed wombats reside in this Epping Forest National Park. But once again, that, that puts them at risk, especially for natural disasters like fire and or disease. But it does give me hope, right? That that people care enough to really fight hard oh, right. uh, for the northern hairy nose wombat and understand that they need protection and and that their populations able to grow in the past 30 years.
0: Oh, there's a yeah, there's a there's a lot of conservation efforts going on in Australia. They 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 love their animals. And to touch upon We
1: love their animals. <laughs> I know,
0: we do. We do. The world does, you know. Our European listeners they love going down there. So, you know, talk. I've been wanting to talk about this one for a while and, you know, I know Australia is facing some really difficult environmental challenges, but being here in New Zealand, seeing invasive species, I, just the other day, Angie, I, they were putting up bat boxes around here, around the gardens around me. Cool. Because of the, the short-tailed bats that are endangered here in New Zealand. And I noticed they're putting bands around the trees. So mm-hmm. the Australian possums and other predators can't climb the trees to get the bats in the bat box. So it's interesting, all the, the conservation efforts, when you wherever you live, if you really start paying attention, you'll see in your backyard where there is active conservation going on. Because Angie and I always talk about conservation as local. Whatever you can do in your own backyard will help uh, you know, global efforts. So the one hit me is invasive species. The threatened species recovery hub in Australia has shown that invasive species are a problem for twelve hundred and roughly around 1,257 threatened species in Australia. I didn't know this. I, I, I know I was kind of aware of it, but I didn't know how bad it was. Four out of five species in Australia are threatened with extinction.
1: Wow, I did not Four know that.
0: Four out of five. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's insane. So they they have problems with. Uh, I'm going to go through some of these animals uh, that they talk about, but you know, the big one. I'll I'll just get straight to the chase. the 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 number one animal that is most harmful to endemic species to Australia are feral rabbits. And when you were talking about the burrows, rabbits take over the burrows and drive out native animals like the bilbies, the bandicoots. I don't think a rabbit's going to drive out a wombat, but you know, other smaller species that depend on that, the rabbits will go and displace them. Then you have, we know feral cats are devastating to native wildlife wherever they are in the world, but you know, also foxes, they're, they're killing off many native birds to Australia. So it's a real scourge. I mean, it's a real scourge. So Australia does have very tight biosecurity like we do here in New Zealand, but again, it's such a massive country, much larger population than here in New Zealand, and things do leak through. So I found a a quick study, just a quick highlight, the economic cost of managing invasive species in Australia. So currently roughly to manage invasive species, and then factoring economic loss to farmers and other, other industries. It's about 15 billion Australia dollars. So it's they, they have a real big problem. One thing they talk about in that paper is exotic plants. So there's over 2,700 exotic plants that have been introduced into Australia and like around 430 are declared noxious. So there, there's active efforts to uh, get rid of these plants. But again, they, you know, you, it's there in the United States, in the Southeast United States, we have something called katsu. So you drive down the highway and you see katsu mm-hmm. just growing like mad and they introduced that in the United States. I... I Not off the top of my head, I don't know where kutsu's from, but it's like a vine, and they they brought it in for erosion control, and it has just it just takes over a a landmass. I mean, just and chokes off all native plants. That's what's going on here in Australia with some some sorts of plants costing four billion annually. There, they estimate there's about 80 species of exotic vertebrates that have been introduced. Into Australia, That's a lot. Wow, yeah, and then that adds up to about eight billion economic impact each year. They have one thing they're citing now. They have a big problem in. They have a big problem now, that I know back home in in Florida, Texas, South Carolina, one of our favorites, Angie, the fire ants.
1: Oh uh, yes, been fire many just, times. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're
0: nasty little little ant from South America. Those have been imported into Australia, so now they're a problem. So they have a lot of introduced species that are displacing native species. Now, like I said, the European rabbit is the most destructive invasive species, has direct impacts on 321 endangered animals in Australia so they not only displace burrows they uh, plants certain plants that they eat and the seeds with the grazing that is destroyed having a direct impact on that the second was a plant disease that's destroying the root system of many native plants then feral pigs was third so uh, they destroy crops native plants they dig up sea turtle eggs on beaches they eat the sea turtle babies they're having a a massive impact on about 149 native species then feral cats so i'll just put this here if you own cats get them spayed or neutered done always always spay and neuter your cats always then goats, then red foxes, then uh, blackberry, latana, those are some weeds, black rats, and feral cattle. So those are the the 10 worst species that are impacting Australian uh, wildlife and plants. Now, Australia is doing a bunch of stuff. So for our friends down there, you're probably aware of that. You know, they're doing some humane reduction in populations, fencing, things like that. And currently the best control right now is prevention. So when you do fly Mm -hmm. to Australia or here in New Zealand, very strict border controls. I know when Angie and I talked about traveling to the Galapagos islands, they have extreme control, insect control and, and, and things like that. So, um, but just something to be aware of, you know, and this is, a phenomenon that affects Angie's backyard in Florida, absolutely you know, invasive species and animals introduced in Europe and other parts of the world. So, anyways, just thought I would bring that up this week on Australia and what they're going. Well, I just to. had
1: no idea that what did you say? Four out of five? That's yeah, are threatened.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, it's like humans. We we we've had a major impact down there, and when we bring all these animals in. Like you and I were laughing earlier, not laughing, but talking earlier about future podcasts. And you said, oh, I want to do pheasant. But I was just driving out and I saw this big, beautiful pheasant that had been introduced, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of years, 100 years ago to New Zealand for hunting and stuff. I saw California quail. I First time I saw a California quail walking around. And I'm like, I, last time I saw him was out in the Mojave Desert.
1: You're turning into such a bird nerd. I love it.
0: <laughs> last night, you text me and you're like, uh, have a good night.
1: Uh, I'm going birding tomorrow. It's
0: cute. That's funny. <laughs> we don't, I don't have any lions to go count or elephants. I've got birds. I don't
1: either. No, birds <laughs> is great. It's an amazing
0: Amazing uh, pastime hobby for sure. It is. It is. Me and my little uh New Zealand fantails. I just uh they're great. And then Kingfishers well, I was gonna and it gets you outside, it was... gets
1: you hanging out with your boys, gets you talking about yeah. science and nature. And uh we've talked about it in the podcast before, but so many studies are supporting just being outside. It can help your immune system and your anxiety and all of these things. And then then you add walking around nature in it, looking for birds, just
0: it's very, very good for you. What do you think I'm going to do when we're done? <laughs> going out for a walk to <laughs> go count right. birds because right. I need to get my exercise. Absolutely. All right. I would love to go out and count wombats or other species. Okay. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan Classification. Obviously, wombats are mammals, over 5,500 species of mammals. So, Angina got plenty of work to do. The infra class is marsupialae, so marsupials, roughly 334 species. 70% live in Australia and then the nearby islands like New Guinea. We just covered the uh, Dracula parrot, so up in that area. The other 30% Live in South America and North America. One species, yeah, north of Mexico. You know, there's 13 species in Central America, but there's one species in the United States and Canada. That's and right, that our is, opossum. Yeah, our Virginia opossums. That's our episode 169, by the way. The families vomit today. So the, the three main species we've been talking about, the genus. Vombatus is the common wombat and Lassa hornus no I'm not saying that right. Lassier hinnus is the northern and southern hairy nosed. So those are your three species. The commons have three subspecies, right? The
1: Yes, for the common wombat or the bare nose or forest wombat. There's the mainland common wombat, the Tasmanian wombat, and their Flinders Island wombat, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which are subspecies of the common
0: yeah yeah so three subspecies of them now looking at I, I, it just it, it amazes me uh, again i get so dorky with the evolution but you know long time ago there was pangaea right that was that large supercontinent and then about 225 million years ago it it, it broke apart into a northern continent called laurasia and then southern was gondwana And so each was like a ship with its own animals that kind of separated out. And marsupials evolved in what is North America today in Godwana, right? And then they went from North America to South America to Antarctica over up into Australia, Even though Australia has almost all the marsupials, they they started in North America so long ago. Now, Antarctica uh, became frozen about 35 million years ago. And that that land bridge was broken up and then it was frozen, no animals left there. I imagine there's a lot of, there's just got to be a rich survey or there's just got to be rich and abundant fossils there. I, I hope one day like we can get somebody down there digging and finding some of these these ancient animals, but placental mammals never made it to Australia, you know, until the dingo came over later and and, and other species. But the you know, the marsupials started all of this journey in North America about 125 million years ago from the very earliest, earliest mammals, they split off and then started this very unique way of raising young that Angie's going to touch upon again. Now, wombats, specifically, a lot we don't know, roughly emerged 10 million years ago, you know, off uh, the marsupial family tree. Their closest relatives are actually koalas, and then you'll go out and look at, you know, kangaroos and possums and, yeah, kangaroos and possums. The Australian possums are their next closest relatives. The Virginia opossum in North America, we covered that. It split off like 75 million years ago, a long time ago, that family tree. So, you know, very distant relative there. But again, we still don't have a lot of evolutionary data on wombats and the three species and how how that all formed. So, yeah, about 10 million years ago is when wombat-like creatures started walking the earth. I had to cover this. (laughs) Yes. Diprotodon, the giant wombat. If you could guess how big. And I'll give you a hint. This is the largest marsupial that has ever lived.
1: Hmm. Okay. They big. It's always bigger than I think. So, <laughs> oh, let's see. It's not Brontosaurus big, but right, 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 right. Yeah, it can't be that big. Um. Uh, like a uh, like a small horse or a pony.
0: It's it, it, Angie. It, it, this thing's like a, a, a rhino, polar bear. It's it's yes. It's almost rhino size. Hippo. Hippo. Let, me, let me let me send you a picture.
1: That is awesome, Chris. I definitely like hippos, bigger son- than yeah. a hippo, smaller yeah. than a rhino. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right,
1: amazing. So, uh, wow, I massive. could crawl up in that pouch.
0: Yes, it's okay. So, it stood about six feet tall or 1.8 meters at the shoulder, measured almost 12 feet long, weighed about three tons or 2,700 kilograms.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a lot more than a horse. But- <laughs>
0: this massive massive (laughs) massive wombat i
1: love it we still need somebody to make this movie with these giant giant mammals i love it oh yeah i took my kids to the natural history museum this past weekend and some and some of our friends because they hadn't been some of our neighbor friends and uh, of course i'm the dork it's like look at the giant sloth bear and the giant armadillo like i mean the it's back is as big as the table. It's just incredible.
0: Yeah. They're massive. So fun. They're massive. I, I so had to fun. cover that one. I just, oh, I had to. It was it was amazing. All right, Angie, we got to get going to this poop thing and and, and some of the physiology. It...
1: Oh yeah. Bring on the poop.
0: For <laughs> sure. right, let me let me get through some of these these quick fat facts. Live about five to fifteen years in the wild, over 20 years under human care. Here's something I found very interesting about them. You look at them and you're like, okay, they kind of, they bebop around the ground. They're fast. They're right. They can book it. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: They are really fast for short speeds. And so up over 40 kilometers per hour over a short distance of about 150 meters. So, yeah, so 40 kilometers hour, that's pretty fast.
0: Yeah. 25 I miles run that per fast. hour. Well, there's mm-hmm. only one human on earth that can. And a sprint, and that's Usain Bolt. So
1: exactly. So, but yeah, <laughs> faster than most people or everybody except for one. So, but for only a really short distance, and and I mean, I guess Usain Bolt's the same way, right? Like he's not a distance runner. So, uh, researchers think that they may have developed this speed to basically hide from predators because they have burrows all around the areas where they're grazing, and so if they hear something scary or see or smell something scary, they book it and run to their closest Mm burrow. And so they can just have these great bursts of speeds and hopefully they make it. If they don't, after about 150 meters, they fizzle out.
0: Yeah, it's like me <laughs> sprinting. <laughs> I don't think I can make it that far actually. Yeah, That's I'm
1: totally far. I'm I'm endurance. I'm the exact opposite. Yeah. I won't dork about about muscle physiology too much, but I must have a lot of the slow twitch fibers. Fiber so I'm more I'm too, more yeah. endurance and yeah. I don't have that sprinting
0: speed. That sprint speed.
1: But well, they don't but I love it because they don't
0: look like an athlete. No, you know what I mean? No, no. No. They're they're just they're chunky little monkeys that are just walking mm-hmm. on the ground. Here's some other cool stuff okay poor eyesight good sense of smell mm-hmm. but can jump did you see that a meter mm-hmm. they can jump over meter high fences so three Wow feet. okay
1: <laughs> I need to see that to believe it but you, I love I love the visual it's giving me
0: yeah you look at the pictures of these things you don't think they can run that fast they can jump this that high but they they can they can they will surprise you it's kind of like the drop bears in Australia you know you gotta watch out for them walking under trees. Uh don't have time to cover drop bears, but be very careful out in the bush. You can uh, Google it and read up on those drop bears. The Aussies know what I'm talking about. Now, here's something I had to had to bring up. And I, I, I ran across it and I started laughing. A group of wombats is called what? Did you see that?
1: Well, yeah, Chris, a colony, which makes sense. Right. Uh, also a mob. But a more. wisdom, as <laughs> wisdom
0: well. of wombats. I saw that. I was like, "Oh my god, I got to bring that up." I got that bring might that be up. the
1: title of this yeah. uh, this episode. It's so yeah, cute. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, normal physiology like other animals, big claws to dig. I mean, we want to get to the the more interesting stuff, and and that's starting to look at the nutrition. So to start this off, very surprising. This is very rare among marsupials but they have teeth like rodents that continually grow i can't think of an, another species i mean i know sharks replace teeth and other animals do that no Elephant, it must be it must yeah it must be this convergent
1: evolution bit. because yeah, yeah. It, it reminds yeah it reminds me of like a nutria or a giant rodent but they're nowhere near the rodent family so it's just really incredible
0: yeah because they have very you know pronounced incisor teeth that are very mm-hmm. much like beavers or rodents and they gnaw and bark and vegetation, but it continuously grows. I was just like, whoa. Now, talking about what they eat and getting into this poop that they're famous for, physiology driven, they have very slow metabolisms, takes a long time to digest. I looked up for us humans, 24 to 72 hours, depending on what we ate to digest, but wombat's what it takes forever, right? That that has a big impact on this famous poop.
1: Well, yeah, they're able to draw a lot of nutrients from the food that they eat, which is pretty common with herbivores, right? If you think of an animal that eats an all grass diet, it's like, well, how do they get fat? And there is fat in grasses and plants. Uh, but a lot of their energy comes from their fiber digestion because they're able To get things from the cellulose and the fiber that us humans are not necessarily. And so the food stays in their track for a long time. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, But what happens is on the way out, this is where it gets amazing wombats are known to poop cubes. And by cubes, I mean like. Rubik's cube cubes, right? They're cubes. <laughs> <So> They're cubes. <laughs> there's their scat is cube shaped where any other animal you can think of that's a mammal and an herbivore is going to have some type of round or oval or uh compressed poop or loose poop. I mean, just there's just the cubes is just incredible. And so with this cube-shaped feces, researchers have long thought that there's two reasons why they evolved to do this is number one, it acts as a territorial marker, which isn't super uncommon for other species, but with the cube shaped feces and they, they poop a lot throughout the day. I mean, they poop anywhere between 80 to hundred little cubes of feces in a single night, but these cubes can be stacked on top of each other and they don't roll away. And so, depending on the rocky terrain that the uh, wombat will build their burrows in, they can kind of stack these cube feces around or near their burrow to message to intruders or other wombats of like, hey, this is my home, and they'll they'll stack on top of each other and they won't roll down the hill. And with that being said, too, these cube poops that can stick around and not roll away – can also be a, a signal of attraction for mate as well. And so that's why researchers speculate that they have evolved this unique physiology. But what I found was super interesting, and you might want to like hold on to your seat or set your drink down if you're driving, but not only is the feces cube-shaped, but wombat feces are among the driest recorded feces that any mammal produces. Mm-hmm. so it just kind of makes me go, ouch, right? Because squares have <laughs> squares have corners, right? I mean- Lots of
0: fiber, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Lots
1: of fiber. And of course, the corners aren't super sharp like a Rubik's Cube, but still, uh, not as smooth as an oval or uh, the shapes that we might be more familiar with um, in feces. And so- super fascinating. I mean, they they do have super tough bums and we'll talk about that when we get to uh, predators and predation. But the internal physiology is what fascinates me is how does the digestive tract, more specifically the large and small colon, how do they shape this or what part shapes it? And basically it's not well understood, which that was a bummer to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, we need to figure this out but it's currently thought that certain parts of the um the wombat colon stretch and pref- preferentially at certain areas to form these box like poops so we don't really know i <laughs> but physicists are interested in studying it and of course um physiologists are too as well is just trying to wonder just on Earth, how do they do that? And so the, the, the debate debate is still ongoing, and uh, obviously it's something internal, the, whether it's the the lining of the mucosa of the colon or the stretchiness in certain yeah, parts of the colon. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was reading about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean herbivore grazing animals, lots of fiber, and and then it takes days to process. It's just crazy. And it just makes me think, too, like when you talk about how dry it is, they don't really need to drink is what I read that because they get it all from their diet and they they're so effective at absorbing that moisture. from
1: Right. Well, purpose. and not only absorbing the moisture, but then also thermoregulating to help keep the moisture. Mm-hmm. And so they are and when it's hot out, they are in their burrows during the day because they're more of a nocturnal animal. And so that helps them obviously not lose a lot of water from the heat. And then when it's a little cooler out, uh, then they're more likely to exit their burrows earlier on so they don't get too cold and have to shiver and thermoregulate in other ways. So uh, yeah, it's really, really, really fascinating that they can not drink much water, get a lot from food, conserve a lot, uh, and then also poop these cubes that are very fibrous and very dry. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Chris, I was so fascinated by the wombat GI tract and, of course, their physiology with the pooping. I had to do a little deeper dive into, like, what they're eating too. And they are herbivores and love to eat grasses, but they'll also eat roots and bark and mosses even. They love the poa grass and the spear grass, and they're also very particular in that they love fresh shoots of grasses, which we know from nutrition that that's where a lot of the nutrients are. So the younger the grass stalk, the more protein and adjustable energy and other new vitamins and minerals it's going to have, and less, lower in fiber or lower in cellulose. cellulose and then as the plant grows it loses some of the nutritional content and becomes more fibrous so a lot of animals prefer these these green shoots and a grazing wombat basically will create these barren areas of a lawn of like leftover green shoots that it was has been eating up and pulling with its its teeth and then we should have mentioned probably earlier that wombats have the split upper lip that allows them to select food and pick which shoots they want to eat um, by putting their front incisors really close to the ground and getting the the tiniest little green shoot that has yeah. very very has a lot has a lot of nutrients in it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also more moisture right uh, because it's a little bit lower in fiber. But depending on which season it is for the wombat, they are often exposed to pretty low quality food sometimes, and. It's really awesome that they have this digestive tract that's really large. And like Chris mentioned, it has a long retention time or point of time from entry to exit, if you will, that can help absorb as many nutrients as possible and and get all this fiber that they're able to utilize in their hindgut to digest all the plant cell walls and the cellulose that, once again, us humans, we can't really do. We Humans need fiber. It's very helpful. Uh, but we don't necessarily get energy from it and volatile fatty acids. And so I had to, of course, start thinking about other GI tracks and comparing and contrasting. And I found this paper that I, I maybe I'll put on our show notes, but I won't uh, bore our listeners too much with, but it was basically talking about uh, microbes and vertebral gastrointestinal t- tracts and how they can produce and conserve nutrients. And it's from 1988, but in physiological reviews, but it, it was a good reminder to me that some of the classic work that was done, even if it is 20, 30 years old, 40 years old, even uh, still can teach a lot. And some of this, these really cool comparative papers where they just, they have all the major mammals and, the, and reptiles uh, and amphibians and birds and are Basically, I have drawings of their gastrointestinal tract that show the different lengths and sizes of the different GI tracts. And so most carnivores are going to have a simple stomach and then basically a relatively short hindgut uh, and a pretty fast retention time in in that they they eat and then they go to the bathroom pretty quickly. Uh, Omnivores, which include a ton of species, uh, humans as well, they're going to have a simple stomach, but the intestine length is going to vary depending on what the function is of what the animal does and the relative body size between their between their small and large intestines. And then when we get to the herbivores, they're basically divided up into where they ferment, where their, where their microbes do all their magic to extract these nutrients from the cellulose um, of either being in the hindgut which is going to be the, lar- the small and large colon, or the f- foregut fermenters, which is going to be the ruminants uh, that do most of their microbial fermentation. Think of like a beer vat is going to be in the foregut or the stomach, and which that's going to be an example of like a cow. So wombats are going to be considered this hindgut fermenter where they have a decent developed stomach and then a moderately developed uh, cecum and small colon to be able to do this microbial fermentation to get, uh, to basically get all the nutrients about it. And so when we specifically look at wombats, the colon is large. On uh, the common wombat and the southern hairy nosed wombat, the colon represents 54 to 64% of the total gut length, which is huge, which gives. The microbes a home, a big home and time to do what they need to do and for them to be able to extract all the nutrients out of these little grasses and different things that they're eating. And it's just a lot of fun for me because I love watching herbivores eat grass. And I'm realizing that I've missed out seeing a wombat uh, munch on grass. It, but they're hard to see, though, because they are out at nighttime. So they are a difficult animal to study. They're very secretive. Uh, they're going to spend about 18 hour, hours a day in their burrow. And during the colder seasons, they will come out during the day to sunbathe. So that's, make, that's a good time to see them. But they're usually not grazing. And when we talk about where they spend most of their time being in the burrows, I didn't realize how good of diggers wombats were. And that not only do they have these amazing claws to help them basically like act like a bulldozer to get rid of the dirt and and basically claw it out behind them, but because of their digging physiology, their pouches are backwards. So when we think of a Joe, or a kangaroo that has a joey's little head sticking out or, or a kowal the same way. Just picture that in reverse, so when you see a wombat offspring sticking their head out of the out of the hole, it's actually going to be between the mom's legs and researchers hypothesize that it's because they're digging dirt all the time and it would not be a good idea to dig a whole bunch of dirt into your pouch where you have a newborn right. yeah. suck growing and you know suckling on your teeth and growing and so. I mean, just what form and function, just brilliant physiology I mean, just, just well, so cool
0: <clears throat> the the one that got me the most, you know not only was their digestive physiology, which again the the square poop that's what they're known for, like people like, Oh my goodness, wombats is when they talk about their defense mechanism lead up to it, so they they don't have many natural predators the the one is the Tasmanian devil. So on Tasmania, they, they will eat wombats. Now Tasmanian devils are being reintroduced in the mainland of Australia. So that's one species that, that goes after them. They can be eaten by dingoes, you know, foxes, eagles, wild dogs. But their defense of this rump, I was like, what? So they have very, like you, you said, very tough rumps and it's what mostly made of cartilage
1: yeah and it's sloped in a way too that it uh it's it's very uh has a has a pitch to it um which makes it hard for predators to like grab onto even though they are a chunky creature they curve down almost like a nutria or something there um from their hip downward it, it curves and yeah they have this th- th- thick skin and of course fur And basically what they will do is they sprint 40 kilometers per hour and run to their burrow away from a dingo, let's say. Uh, When they get to their burrow, they will often just basically plug it up, like dive in, and then like leave their butt sticking out, if you (laughs) will. And because of the slope and the thickness and the strength of it, it's very hard for a predator to really like get a hold of it. Or they might a little bit, but then it's just does it's just they're not able to pull. The hind legs are so strong, too. They're not able to pull the wombat out of the burrow and, or get a really good angle or bite on it. And so a lot of times the predator will just be frustrated and leave. Now, on the off chance that yes. that doesn't happen, yeah. it gets a little crazy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in that... What will happen is as the wombat is blocking up the hole with its hind end, it might actually decide to do a different maneuver where it will lay down a bit, and that will enable the predator who's thinking, aha, I've got this, to come into the burrow over top of them a little bit, probably like a dingo trying to grab their neck or something. And so as that predator comes over top to grab onto their shoulder or uh, their throat or whatever... The wombat will basically stand back up and use their strong legs to crush the head of the predator yes. Yes. against the top side of the burrow. Yeah. Yeah. And so they basically squash predator skulls with their strong bums. And that's the cliff notes. And that is real. And I think they're the only mammal that's known to do that. I challenge somebody to please send us an email to let me know if there's another mammal that exhibits this behavior of skull crushing your predator, the predator in a burrow. Uh, Just incredible
0: incredible they are the stuff you learn like it, it, i didn't know that i didn't know that until oh i
1: had no idea i uh, i mean exactly and uh, and that's and the other thing too is they're not trying to crush anybody's skull right mm-hmm. their their main goal is to run into the burrow and hide right. and because of that a, a one wombat typically will have like 11 or so burrows little escape holes Mm -hmm. if you will in areas where they're grazing and now they're not sleeping in all of them they'll sleep in whichever one maybe they're closest to that night but they know where all of them are and they know maybe like a football player they know exactly which one is closest and how to Mm -hmm. run and hide from it and so that's Mm -hmm. that's usually their main escape route but it's still just so fascinating right i mean my goodness what a crazy evolutionary adaptation And then when we think of wombat mobs or wisdoms, mm-hmm. uh, they're not a, typically a super social cre- creatures are usually found alone. But depending on the species, like common wombats might be more solitary and they're usually in their own burrows. While um, the northern and southern hairy nosed wombats are found to be a little bit more social and sometimes will live in these really large burrows uh, that might, might have 10 to 15 wombats. And it should be noted that a typical burrow of a wombat will have several different resting chambers that they have nice, nice little mats of grass or leaves to kind of make it more ho- homey in there and more comfortable. And then even in the more solitary species, they typically won't use the burrow at the same time, but they will sometimes use or borrow somebody else's burrow. So I thought that was kind of kind of cute. The wombats aren't a super vocal animal. They they do make harsh coughs when they're alarmed and stressed, uh, but in general, they're not going to have a huge repertoire of vocalizations. But what the wombats probably best known for with communication is, of course, these cube-shaped poops, uh, but then also scent marking by rubbing on logs and branches and and letting other wombats and predators know hey this is my territory like stay out or i will crush your skull
0: (laughs) i know it's just it's crazy they do that
1: and then chris too talking about their personalities and their intelligence uh, wombats have the largest brain the largest brain in comparison to their size of all the marsupials Whereas koalas, bless their hearts, have the smallest brain per size. Uh, but they don't, you know, they're, they're kind of just eat some stuff. They don't really have to move. They're in trees. They don't they don't have to like run from predators or remember where their burrows are. And so uh, keepers and people that have worked with wombats say that they're very clever and very playful. They're always, when they're out and about, they're like always doing something, which once again makes me wish that I could have worked with wombats sometime.
0: And then, of course, anytime we talk about marsupials, just the the uniqueness of reproduction.
1: Well, I know, Chris, and because we're on air and not in person, uh, everyone's going to miss my kind of charades of mimicking a a newborn marsupial offspring and how they're about the size of a jelly bean when they're born and highly undeveloped and like little gummy arms and they have to basically crawl their way from the birth canal into the pouch. And so I make these little noises. And anyways, it always made people laugh when I would do it for a tour when I was at the yeah, zoo behind the yeah. scenes tour. Because it, like if you really think about it, it's crazy. Like the, the they're born just super underdeveloped with little nubs for arms, blind, hairless, little pink jelly beans, for, really. And they have to make somehow this crazy journey from the birth canal all the way up and into the pouch to then find a teat to grab onto a teat and just start growing and actually finish finishing their development. But I will say the wombat has a little bit more of a shortcut because their pouch is the other way it's facing basically the birth canal. So they really just have more of a one way street. They don't have to go up and around the mountain like possums and uh, kangaroos and stuff like that. So anyways, I wish I wish I could share with everybody my little <laughs> my, my my visual of being <laughs> yes, a jelly bean a marsupial offspring. Yeah. But anyways, uh, in general, with a wombat, uh, they they're thought to be seasonal breeders, but sometimes there are births throughout the year, so it just depends on where they live. And in regards to their mating system, it's thought that they're uh, polygynous, but they're not exactly sure once again because they're so secretive, uh, being nocturnal, but. There is a little bit known about their courtship behavior uh, in that a male wombat will often chase the female. And a lot of times she just runs in circles. So clearly she's not trying to completely escape him. She's probably more playing games. But when he does catch up with her, he'll usually bite her on the rump, which, as we discussed earlier, probably doesn't hurt her that much because they have this like thick skin. Uh, And then, but he will roll her onto her side. And then he joins her on his side and and they breed. And while they're breeding, though, a lot of times she will break off and start running back in circles again. And so the process goes. And there may be several of these chasing, breeding, chasing, breeding uh, sessions to complete the whole breeding cycle. So it's good. She plays a little hard to get and um, a little, you know, gets a little annoyed with him. But typically once a male is done breeding, she like runs off in a straight line. Like, okay, now I am done with you. <laughs> <That>
0: 40 kilometers <laughs> or 25 miles per hour. I'm yes, out. Yes,
1: exactly. She's like, this is for real now. I'm not going in a circle. I'm I'm booking it out of here, right? Uh, but one, um, once breeding is finished, she'll gestate for about a month. And then she'll just produce this tiny joey. That is the size of a jelly bean and not developed about 0.25 ounces, half an inch. And this little thing that's undeveloped will kind of shimmy its way into the pouch, uh, grab onto a nipple and the wombat joey will live there for about six months unseen, like will not pop its little wombat head out. And Chris, what I found really fascinating with wombat joeys is that they don't wean until they're like 12 to 15 months of age. So they're still hopping back in that pouch Mm -hmm. to nurse, which is just crazy. I mean, that's like, that's some serious commitment. I I, I mean, I have an eight-month-old that I carry around for 10 minutes and I'm like, John, this thing is heavy. (laughs) Can you please take him for a second? And so, yeah, I mean, they're on and off like, and I don't know when it's 12 months old, they're actually carrying, carrying it around, but it's going in for little drinks and stuff like that. And then, and then the juvenile wombat will stay with the mama wombat until it's about 18 to 20 months of age, almost two years. So when we talk about, generation interval in trying to get up the numbers of the northern hairy-nosed wombat, it's going to take time because male and female wombats don't mature until they're about two years old. And then the female wombat is only going to have, produce a joey like every other year. So it's not going to be as prolific when, as when we think about kangaroos that kangaroo pretty much has, I I always say the story that she has like three offspring at once. She has uh, one that's, um, she's gestating, one in her pouch nursing, and then one on the ground following her around. And they're just, I mean, they're, they're like the Australian rabbits. They just breed and breed and breed and breed. Uh, it's not like that at all with wombats. So it's really important to keep an eye on their conservation because they're just not really they're not really prolific and the mother wombat really takes her time I suppose maybe teaching the juvenile wombat how to dig and burrows and how to find food and how to run from predators and how to uh crush their skulls (laughs) I mean yeah Yeah, correctly so yeah it's just really fascinating I had I had no idea that wombats have this slow generation interval
0: no, I mean, you know, especially when you're looking at the northern hairy nose, that's 300, you know, that's it. So, they and that's really total. To that's not necessarily breeding yeah. age. No, yeah, that's total population. So, they definitely are, you know, they, they definitely have a lot of things competing, a lot of pressures, habitat loss, competition for food. We talked about these invasive species. They They have a mange that's being spread by the dogs there and foxes that can kill the wombats. So they, they do have some, some issues before we get to the conservation tip of the week. Cause I do want to talk about, you know, what to do if you come across a dead marsupial or one that got hit by a car or something, how you might be able to help what organizations out there fighting for wombats.
1: Oh yes, Chris, uh, I got to give a big shout out to the wombat foundation that can be found at wombatfoundation.com.au and, It's a brilliant group that is a nonprofit, and they're basically fighting for the plight of the Northern Hairy nosed Wombat. Their overarching goal is to save them from extinction, and the Wombat Foundation does this by funding research to learn more about wombats and how to conserve them, and they also help bring the community together, help educate the community about wombats and why care, and they're a really inspirational group that brings a whole bunch of different people together to help save the wombat. So check out the wombatfoundation.com.au. They also have a Facebook page and they're doing really great work. So definitely give them a like, a follow. And obviously if you can help them out financially, uh, that would be awesome. And hopefully uh, at the end of this month, Chris and I can help them out financially through our Patreon support.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now I have to give credit to Chantel over in Australia. She was texting me saying, you should really talk about this. And, and I was like, yes, yes. And that is, you know, checking pouches of roadkill. And there is a way to do this. And Angie, this goes back to when I was doing wildlife rehab back in South Carolina and for possums. So, you, you, you know, if a possum got hit by a car or the side of the road, You know, I'd carry plastic gloves um, and I'd carry a box and towels. And if you'd find little baby possums, you can stick them in that box with towels, call wildlife rehab center and get those possums placed. So that's how we got our possums. Like I never physically checked the possum myself, but we were prepared to do it if we ran across one on the road. So there is a a, a good pouch checking guide, and and I'm gonna post this on our show notes when we get the Wombat page up by Wildlife Victoria. But it gives you how you should go about doing this because what you're doing is first checking to see if if mom's if it's a male or female and if it's still alive or not. And there's people you can call, gives you a bunch of numbers in Australia and, and in the United States or South America or Central America. There's probably some rehab centers where you're at, but if it's injured, you don't want to help it. You want to call out the experts to come and and help that animal. But if it's dead, so this guide will, will talk to you through about how to check if they're alive or not. But if it's dead, you can search the pouch for babies in hopes of trying to save that baby. And, one of the first things I will say, if you ever do this, and, and in the guide they talk about is drag the animal off the road because you need to be safe, right? We we don't want you to get hurt while you do this. But if you, if you can tell if it's a female or male, a male's going to have testes. The females are, have pouches. Male marsupials do not have pouches. This kit is pretty intense, but, you know, it, it's got let me see, pillowcases, gloves, plastic gloves, hand sanitizer, a torch or flashlight, scissors, um, things that you might need in this kit. And so what they say is, you know, check to see if the animal's alive. If it, is, if it isn't, drag it off the road, locate the pouch. You can use gloves, open the pouch, look for babies. They said use a pillow or towel nearby in case There is a joey or a a baby that can escape in there that you can maybe catch. Um, But again, don't endanger your safety while you do this. You can open the pouch. And then it talks about hairless joeys. What they would want you to do is make sure the mom's dead. If she is, to to use your scissors and cut the teat. Don't pull the joey off the teat, but cut the teat. And then you can wrap that joey up and then put them in a box. So make sure they're warm. If it's furred, you know, then you can just slowly pull the joey out. And in the picture, they actually have a baby wombat that they're, they're pulling out of, of the pouch. And then you would want to, you know, either put them in in the bag or the box wrapped in towels so they're warm, and then call your uh, local wildlife rehab center. This one's Victoria, Australia. So that that's the quick of it. So what I always had was, again, towels, a box. Plastic gloves. Uh, I didn't even think of scissors, but you should. I should have included scissors in there. And anytime you come across a marsupial that's dead, and and this happens quite a bit in Australia, especially with kangaroos, uh, you know, you can pull them off the road, search the pouch for babies. If there's little babies in there, you can pull them out, wrap them up, put them in the box, and then call a wildlife rehab specialist, and they will come and pick them up for you. So I'll post this guide. That was the the, the cliff notes version, uh, but I'll post it. It it can be used for animals in Australia and in the Americas. But you know, it's just something we can all do to, to to help wildlife.
1: It's definitely a good tool to have. That's for sure.
0: But other than that, I mean, wombats, Angie. There's so much to talk about with them. It just blew me away. Like I, I I love when we cover a species, and I'm like. I'm I'm surprised at the stuff we learn and we just I have a lot of new fun facts
1: to, to talk about during the holiday season with family and friends uh who will hopefully will be able to get together a little bit more safe this season and I'm looking forward to it with the kids being mm-hmm, vaccinated mm-hmm. and we are going to be talking a lot about wombats that's for yeah. sure because yes <laughs> I am not shy to bring up square poop over yeah holiday food <laughs> and my well, family is they love me for it
0: I yes think. i know i know that's where the weir- we're the weirdos in our family uh the, the science geeks but thank you everybody for listening and, and like angie asked at the beginning if you could share this podcast or your favorite podcast with friends we, we so appreciate it so keep the emails coming the comments on facebook and, and elsewhere but you know stay tuned we got a really good one coming next week too so take care
1: Thank you, everyone.
0: Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.